so it's possible in the Chinese perspective that they could go and they could seize one of these islands. They could say, oh, you know, nobody really did anything and nobody really seems to care. And so now that gives us a good sense as to what might be next. What, you know, could we actually go and escalate our coercive campaign? But if you do seize Dongsha, here are the consequences. One, you will have to get into an armed conflict with Taiwan. It will not be a bloodless coup de main. Two, you will face a tighter counterbalancing coalition in the region, and you will face economic sanctions of, of this type, and you will face potential trade sanctions of this type. And oh, by the way, like here's a sort of information campaign that we might launch against you. And here are potential escalatory options. Hey, welcome back to the Modern War Institute podcast. I'm John Amble, editorial director at MWI, and this episode features a conversation about Taiwan. Recent events in the region surrounding Taiwan have generated a lot of attention. The discussion you're about to hear, however, looks at it from a very specific perspective. My guest is Chris Doherty of the Center for a New American Security. He and his colleagues recently conducted a war game that sought to identify what strategic options the United States and Taiwan have to deter a particular fait accompli move by China against Taiwan. What they found as the best option is something they describe as the poison frog strategy. You'll get a chance to hear all about that strategy during the episode, but before we get to it, a couple quick notes. First, if you aren't yet following MWI on social media, find us on Twitter, Facebook, or LinkedIn. It is a great way to stay up to date on all of the new articles, podcast episodes, and research we're publishing every day. And second, as always, what you hear in this episode are the views of the participants and don't represent those of West Point, the Army, or any other agency of the US government. All right, here's my conversation with Chris Doherty. Chris, thank you so much for joining this episode of the MWI podcast. Thanks, John. Thanks for having me. So you are one of the authors of a, uh, a report uh, called The Poison Frog Strategy, released by CNAS, the Center for a New American Security, where you work. Uh, I recently read it, you know, for, for sort of by way of background for listeners, I recently read it and I shot you a note and I said, hey, this is really interesting. Would you be willing to come on the podcast and talk about it? You said yes. So that's what we're going to do today. Um uh, you know, just to very briefly introduce it, the you ran a war game uh, at CNAS surrounding a particular Taiwan scenario. It was essentially what can the United States and Taiwan do in tandem to deter a particular type of uh, of Chinese aggression against Taiwan. You picked a scenario that was essentially a Chinese fait accompli against one of Taiwan's outlying islands. Uh, is that correct, or am I am I sort of mangling it? Yeah, that's a pretty good synopsis. Yeah. Okay, great. So um, I guess kind of before we get into that, can you talk a little bit about CNAS's wargaming capability? Because, you know, in the past, this has been something that's been sort of, um, you know, a, a niche interest to some extent, and certainly a niche capability. You know, there are only a few sort of corners within the formal uh, defense enterprise in the United States that really did this well. And, and now you've got think tanks and academic institutions and what have you sort of getting involved in it. Can you talk about CNAS's gaming capability? Absolutely. So uh, I came to CNAS in the fall of 2018, following four years that I spent in the Office of Secretary of Defense uh, for Policy, uh, where I worked on many things, uh, among which uh, were wargaming, but also the 2018 National Defense Strategy. And when I came to CNAS, um, I, was, I was determined to establish a wargaming capability at the center. And we started small. We started doing some war games to support uh, my project which is on developing what I call a new American way of war. 
um, which is a reference to the, the classic Russell Wiley piece on, on US uh, military strategy, the American way of war. Um, and as part of that, I brought in um, my colleague, Dr. Ed McGrady, formerly the Center for Naval Analyses, who I'd done a lot of wargaming with um, at when I was in the Pentagon. And then we built it out. Um, we brought in my awesome colleague, uh, Becca Wasser, who's my co-lead for the gaming lab. Uh, and then we expanded it even further um, with uh, the recent hire of our program director, uh, Stacey Pettyjohn, both of whom formerly RAND, both of whom worked uh, doing gaming at, at, at RAND. Stacey actually was responsible for setting up a gaming center at RAND. So she's got a lot of experience in wargaming. So we now actually have a pretty big wargaming team. And you're right, this used to be a fairly niche capability um, you know, I, I, prior to going to the Pentagon, I worked at the Center for Strategic and Budgetary Assessments, which is one of the few think tanks that did wargaming. So I've been doing this since uh, about 2008 uh, is when I started doing wargaming there at the Center for Strategic and Budgetary Assessments and continued it when I was at the, when I was in the Pentagon and now at CNAS. And what we have done at CNAS is we've developed a really flexible capability, which is why we call it a lab and not a center or some like institute, right? Is we're a little bit more experimental. We like to be on, uh, on the edge. Um, and one of the things we've really doubled down on um, serendipitously because of COVID, but I actually think it's really cool in a lot of respects, is remote wargaming. And you see that in this game. One of the reasons we were able to do this game with participants from all over the world was because we could do it remotely. Now, it, did re it required doing it at kind of an awkward time. I think we started the game at like uh, 9 o'clock you know, p.m. DC time, so it would be 9 a.m. Uh, Taiwan time. Um, and in that time zone. But the cool thing about it is people don't have to get in a plane and travel anymore. So formerly, if we wanted to do games with, for example, a contingent from Australia, the Australians would have to take an incredibly expensive plane flight, you know, maybe, you know, maybe to Hawaii, and then we'd take a plane flight to Hawaii, and we'd meet somewhere, uh, you know, at like Hickam Air Force Base and have a war game. And now we all can just jump on Zoom, provided you're doing it unclassified, um, but you can do it using Zoom, and it makes it a lot easier and more efficient and less costly to do these big multilateral games. Um, and what I like about that is it allows us to draw on a more diverse group of participants. It's not just the same handful of people you get that are all kind of in the DC policy crowd um, where you're just sort of, you know, I, I kind of refer to it as an intellectual cul-de-sac. You just keep going around <laughs> seeing the same houses over and over and over again. And not that not that that's a bad thing. You know, a lot of those folks are, are, are you know, I mean, I'm, I'm probably one of those folks at this point now. Um, but I, I think it, it behooves us to reach out to new new groups, new audiences, new participants. And going virtual has allowed us to do that. So we do a lot of cool stuff. It's not just war, war gaming, although that's my focus. Um, we did some really cool work on... Um, what a, a Chinese coercive campaign against the Taiwan semiconductor industry might look like. We ran a game oh, wow. on that, which is really cool. I didn't do that. That was my colleague, Becca Wasser, and uh, with support from Ed. Um, and then I'd also like to give a shout out to, to uh, the two co-authors I had on this report um, who also helped a lot with the game. Um, and that's Jenny Machishak, who's one of our research assistants, and then Ripley Hunter, who's one of our former interns at CNAS. You know, when I was reading the report... Um... I kept thinking back to the RAND report from uh, the RAND study from from several years ago that has become you know quite famous and and is very widely cited that essentially looked at a case of Russian aggression against the Baltic states and concluded that that Russian forces could be in the Baltic capitals within thirty six to sixty hours and there was very little the Baltic defense forces, uh, Baltic states defense forces and NATO could do about it. This is I think by definition a fait accompli. 
that's the subtitle of your report, Preventing a Chinese Fate Accompli Against Taiwanese Islands. When you, when you conduct a war game like this, do you come into it with any sort of preconceived notions about, you know, is there really anything or how much can the United States do if China decides to really direct its energy and resources toward aggression, uh, you know, against Taiwan along the lines of the scenario that you devise for the game? Yeah, I mean, I think you go into every game with a little bit of a hypothesis, right? It's rare that you're doing a game and you just have like no idea what's going to happen and you have no preconceived notions um, because generally you've done some research prior to running the game. That's the reason that you are running the game is right. There's a problem here. You don't like run a war game to be like, well, what am I going to do when I go to the store? Well, I don't know what I'm going to do. I'm going to buy the things that are on my shopping list. Like I don't need a game to tell me that. Um, you're, so you're looking at a game where you think that there's going to be some probability of a, of a difficult challenge that you're going to face. And there's some uncertainty in there and you want to explore that area of uncertainty, but you have some ideas as to what that uncertainty might comprise. In this particular case, I was fairly confident going into the game that this was going to be a difficult challenge for the U.S. and Taiwanese policymakers. But what I wanted to do was several fold. One, I wanted to explore what the challenge would look like. Uh, this is not an area um, I'm, I'm, I'm quite familiar with the military challenge to Taiwan. I've spent more years and more days in conference rooms, eating bad pastries and drinking bad coffee, playing war games over Taiwan than I would care to admit. Um, but I've done relatively less work on exploring the coercive, subconventional, what people kind of call the gray zone, although I, I loathe that term for a whole host of reasons. But I've, I haven't spent as much time looking at that. And so my hypothesis going into this was that this was going to be a significant challenge. It was worthy of looking at, and it would be informative to both the U.S. and Taiwanese players. And that last part was really important to me because one of the things we talked a lot about in the 2018 National Defense Strategy was this closer collaboration with the, the sort of most vulnerable of our allies and partners. And you mentioned the RAND report um, about the Baltics. I would argue that the Baltics and Taiwan comprise the two most vulnerable positions um, in the sort of U.S. security perimeter as, as we've defined it in, in the modern era. Um, Taiwan, obviously, because of the threat posed by the People's Republic of China, and the Baltics, uh, obviously, because of the threat posed by the, the Russian armed forces and the Russian Federation. Um, one of the things we're seeing today, obviously, is the, the current, you know, the pressure on Poland from Belarus. So there's this, you know, there's this fear of this instability in these two regions is not just, uh, not just Taiwan. But really wanted to explore this from a policy perspective and understand what it was that the United States, Taiwan, and its other regional allies and partners could do to create a more effective deterrence strategy against this sort of limited seizure short of the full-up invasion of Taiwan. So we created a scenario centered around the island of Dongsha, also sometimes referred to as Pratas Island, which is um, like a couple hundred miles southeast of Hong Kong and a couple hundred miles southwest of um, the, the sort of southwestern tip of Taiwan um, in the South China Sea. Um, very, very small little atoll, very minimal uh, land features. There's a small contingent uh, of Taiwanese forces on the island today. Um, and if you if you Google it, you can see pictures of uh, Taiwanese President Tsai Ing-wen um, there with these forces, um, you know, sort of on a, on a press junket. Um, but there's a significant concern in Taiwan and also regionally uh, about the threat posed by China, not just in the sort of big invasion scenario, 
that I think the U.S. armed forces spend a lot of time thinking about, but also these smaller uh, coercive uh, coercive campaigns against something like Dongsha or Taiping, which is further south, further into, um, it, it's in the Spratleys in the South China Sea, um, or the, the Chinese outlying islands like Kemoi and Matsu, um, which are right off the coast of China, or the Pengdu Islands, which are closer to, to Taiwan. The concern on the Taiwanese side being that these could be potentially a springboard for an invasion of Taiwan, or a chance for the Chinese to dip their toe in the water of potential coercion or aggression against Taiwan. So rather than going from zero all the way to full invasion, China might first say, okay, what would it be like if we just, you know, launched a, a like a minimal coercive campaign against one of these islands? What's the regional response? Do people care? Do they not care? Because most people don't have formal uh, uh, diplomatic ties with Taiwan. And so it's possible in the Chinese perspective that they could go and they could seize one of these islands. They could say, oh, you know, nobody really did anything and nobody really seems to care. And so now that gives us a good sense as to what might be next. What, you know, could we actually go and do a escalate our coercive campaign to something like a, a quarantine or a blockade of Taiwan or even potentially a, a rapid invasion? And would people just not actually respond to that? So we, we were looking at this, this scenario. It's one that's of great concern, I think, to US policymakers, but also of concern to Taiwanese policymakers. Um, and it's a, a potential flashpoint. So we thought, you know, it's an interesting thing to look at. We were talking um, uh, offline and, and you told me that you conducted the war game earlier this year in the, in the springtime, I believe. Um, the report was just released a few weeks ago in, in late October. Um, and the timing of that release is, is you know, for maybe for lack of a better term, uh, it's sort of fortuitous. Yeah, I'll say. Yeah, yeah. You know, Taiwan is something that always has a certain degree of, of attention paid to it. Um, but events in recent weeks and months, things like the Chinese record-breaking numbers of Chinese military aircraft uh, flying into Taiwan's air defense identification zone, things like that mean that, you know, there's there's more attention being paid to it right now. And, and so so hopefully that means more people uh, will will read the report. When you set out to um, to conduct a war game like this, who are the stakeholders that you that, that it's really important for you to, um, you know, for you to integrate their perspectives? Yeah, really, what I wanted represented was the US policymaking community, and that's not just a, a Department of Defense community, but also um, Department of State, Department of Treasury. You know, the, the, uh, a a decent representative of the organizations involved in a U.S. response to this sort of act, and then the same thing on the Taiwanese side, and then a representation of various international actors, so Japan, Australia, the European Union slash NATO. Um, to see what the rest of the world would say. And then, you know, frankly, we had some players who were there who were playing the Chinese side. You want these different entities inside the U.S. government as well as inside the Taiwanese government, because when you respond to an act like this, it's not purely a military response. So if this were a, like a pure, like straight up war game, we would probably dispense with most of the interagency stuff and focus in on the operational interactions between military forces. But in this, you're talking about information campaigns and you're talking about potential economic and trade sanctions and stuff like that, which, you know, bringing in military staff to do that would not be the most effective way. So you have to have a, a, a multi-agency a multi representation 
not just on the US side, but also on the Taiwanese side so that you can coordinate policies. To me, that was one of the key takeaways and one of the key things I wanted to explore with this game was how do you plan to coordinate policies across not just one, but two, three, four, and five governments during a crisis? Um, and it turns out that that's really difficult to do. And I think you know we've seen just firsthand in the United States how hard it is to coordinate policies inside a government during a crisis we just saw it in Afghanistan, right? Like the, the the disconnect in some points between the Department of Defense and the Department of State in terms of getting out certain kinds of visa holders and all that kind of stuff that went into the evacuation of Kabul, that was difficult in and of itself. Now imagine trying to do that across two different governments with a pretty significant language barrier with all the obstacles that we have to direct cooperation with Taiwan because of its unique status. Um, and then add into that a fast-moving crisis with a competitor as dangerous as China, and you've got the recipe for a really, really difficult challenge. Sure. So, as I mentioned, the report is called the Poison Frog Strategy, and I'm, I'm of course, going to ask you to describe that. Um, but you know, first, can you describe you know when when the players sat down and they began playing this war game? Uh, presumably they were sort of feeling out the problem set, exploring its contours and trying some other things. Were there any sort of failed strategies, failed approaches uh, that were tried before they came to the comparatively more successful uh, strategy that you describe in the report? Yeah, I'd argue that, you know, that, and this is one of the tensions in doing a war game like this, um, especially when you've only got uh, a certain amount of time in which to do it, which is that you can't, explore every aspect of it that you might want to. Um, you know, if I were to run this game again and run it several times, I think I would rewind to pre-crisis and then run the pre-crisis moment several times to see what specific Taiwanese and US actions had what responses on the Chinese side. What we did was we posited that China had seized Dongsha and then said, okay, what are the coercive measures and actions that the United States team could take um, in, in cooperation with the Taiwanese and other regional allies and partners. And then afterward, we sort of discussed with the Chinese team and with the group as a whole, what were the things that had we done them pre-crisis would have been the most effective deterrence to this action ever happening in the first place. Um, I think what we found in terms of failed strategies was that they're really there is a tendency on the side of the US side, and this could be a bias because of the folks that we had, um, and it could be a bias because of my own inherent biases is because I do a lot of war gaming and I'm, I come from a military background, but I, I do think there was a bias toward military action and there was a bias toward somewhat aggressive military action because that was the, it was the fastest, most effective tool. Um, and so even though like, you know, it's kind of like you see like a, an insect scurry across your, your kitchen you pick up the nearest thing that's at hand. And you know, it's, if that's a hammer, well, that, that's a hammer, even though that's not what you want to use to hit an insect running across your countertop because you're going to break the countertop and you probably won't hit the insect. you got a hammer and it, it's there. And so let's use it. And I think there's a little bit of that when it comes to US policy and these kinds of gray zone challenges is that the thing that is the most responsive and has the clearest impact is almost always military force followed, I think, closely by doing things like economic sanctions. Um, but even economic sanctions, they take a while to craft, they take a while to target, and they take a while to take effect. Um, and we tried other things in the game, like, and we talked about in this report, we tried, you know, information operations, we tried sort of these multilateral diplomatic initiatives. 
And the difficulty with all of those is that if you haven't planned them in advance, they just take a really long time to take effect. Right? Like I can craft a great info strategy to, you know, to turn public opinion against Chinese belligerents, but it's going to take a while to craft the strategy. It's going to take a while to implement it. It's going to take a while to actually work its way into the targeted audiences and then produce some sort of impact in terms of changing government policies in the countries where you might want to change your policies. So like if that takes, you know, seven months or nine months, it's of very little use when China has boots on the ground in Dongsha. It's not going to make them go away. Um, and so the, the tendency is to fall back on military force, I think, in those occasions, which I think is probably ultimately counterproductive because there's a real reticence on all sides to go to war over a sort of tiny flyspeck island in the South China Sea, um, which is what makes these problems so difficult, right? If it were just like, oh, it was obvious we'll go to war over this, then it wouldn't really be much of a question. You just, you'd sort of send in the Navy and you'd send in the Air Force and the Marine Corps and you'd say, okay, we're going to go and we're going to fight over this thing. Um, it's a whole lot different when you have a threshold for what you're willing to do and the risks you're willing to take. And that threshold is somewhat below going to potential World War III over this, this tiny little island. Um, and so I do think that the, the more aggressive strategies, while they feel satisfactory because they allow a, a robust, rapid response, that I found in the game felt like a little bit of a failed strategy. And I think that's where we arrived at more of a, rather than sort of an immediate, you know, fast military counterpunch, it was more of a, the, the reason we chose the term poison frog is I want to make it so that things like Dongsha or other Taiwanese islands, they communicate to the to China or, you know, whether in you could extrapolate this to other areas where you've got a really vulnerable position that you may or may not want to go to, to full military conflict over. They communicate that taking this thing is going to be extremely painful and difficult in and of itself. And that, that the seizure of that thing will cause you ultimately more pain than the benefits that you accrue from it. It's interesting that you mentioned uh, that the U.S. sort of instinctive response is to um, is to turn to the military. That'll be something that's a concept that's familiar to anybody who's read Rosa Brooks's book from five or so years ago, How Everything Became War and the Military Became Everything. When you have this massive military capability like the United States does, it's it's, I guess, not unnatural to treat it like the Leatherman on your belt, a multi-tool that you can kind of open up first when you need to uh, solve a problem quickly. Taiwan does not have that same massive military capability. So I'm curious, kind of, you know, in, within the game, what the Taiwanese perspective was uh, when the U.S. players sort of suggested um, initially a military response. Yeah, I think um, they were much more inclined toward diplomacy um, much more quickly, um, whereas the U.S. side was more inclined toward using military force. And I think that um, that reflects both proclivities of the two different governments. Um, as, as you mentioned, you know, we have a, a tendency to fall back on, on, on military power um, because we're comfortable with it and we've sort of tended to use it over time. And as, as you said rightly, and I think that that book makes a good point, which is that it, it has crowded out thinking about policy options in other ways, in large part because the military offers such a, a rapid 
and credible and also effectively planned response to things, which I think a lot of other, I mean, it's one thing that people don't understand. I think when you get to um, these sort of high level interagency discussions is really DOD is the only organization out there that plans in the way it does. And so when somebody says, well, what are we going to do about X? You know, 48 hours, you have a bunch of military staffers, they go back and they come with you, you know, the military decision-making process, and they come back and say, here's a plan to do X. Uh, the other bureaucracies and the other agencies just don't have that capability. And so as a result, like, you know, people say, well, what are we going to do? Like you ask, the, ask DOD and we can give you a plan. It might not be the best plan. It might not be what you should do, but at least it's a plan and it's concrete. And it has like objectives and it looks good. And like, so I, I think, you know, th that's, uh, that's a whole kind of other kettle of fish in a, perhaps a discussion for a different day. But I do think that other, um, other countries like Taiwan, for example, don't have quite that same, um, that same response. And they also have significant cross-strait ties with China, which is something that like we don't necessarily fully grasp is the, the interconnected nature of that relationship is as, as separate as the two entities are, as, as Taiwan is from, from the PRC, um, in many ways, there are still significant economic and diplomatic ties and familial ties across the street. And so they were kind of immediately thinking about, okay, let's go back channel. Let's figure out how to, you know, extricate everybody from this terrible situation um, because they will bear the brunt of escalation even more than we would. As much as the United States doesn't want to go to World War III over this island, Taiwan really doesn't want to be in the middle of World War III if they can avoid it. Um, and so they were trying to figure out another route out of this uh, dilemma that did not involve, you know, the United States kind of starting a war on their behalf. So can we talk in a little bit more detail about this, the poison frog strategy? You mentioned that it, 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 it entails communicating to China that this will be painful for you if you undertake this particular course of action. What does that look like in practice? Yeah, so I think, um, you know, there's been a lot of discussion about what exactly is a fait accompli. Um, there are some folks, um, my colleague at CNAS, uh, Mike Kaufman, who is a Russia expert, writes a lot um, in, in War on the Rocks and other places about sort of, you know, having an actual like really tight definition of fait accompli, which means uh, an action taken against essentially no resistance, right? Where you do it and, and, and like literally nobody's fighting back against you and you just declare, okay, I'm done. Um, so, you know, I think he would probably have a tighter definition and I think this fits into that, right? The, the, the scenario we posited is essentially the Chinese apply such overwhelming force against Dongsha in this case, that there is no resistance. They capture the forces on the island. There's no shots fired. It is a, it is a bloodless coup de main, if you will, um, making it so that that is not a possibility, putting a garrison that is at least capable enough to force some kind of military action on the island, I think is important because it changes the dynamics of an event. It's one thing to go and to, to seize an unoccupied atoll somewhere and then get a bunch of dredging ships and dredge up and build a little island. It's like, nobody's really clear. It's like, is that an act of war? Is that an act of aggression? Like what, what, what is it when you like just grab an unoccupied piece of like coral reef and then dump a bunch of sand on it? Like people have, people can't really wrap their heads around how to respond to that. But if you start dropping bombs on people and you start landing amphibious forces and there's like a, a, a shootout, people know what that is. Like that's a, that's a fight. Like that's a, that's not, that's no longer gray zone. That's now actually like people shooting at each other. Um, and so I think you have to make it such that there is, a, there is an actual fight. 
And, you know, I know that that involves almost to some degree saying like, look, we're going to put some people on this island and their job is somewhat to potentially die so that there is a fight here. And that's an uncomfortable thing. But frankly, you know, the United States has done that a lot, right? I mean, our presence in Korea for, for you know, decades has essentially been there so that it guarantees a U.S. response when U.S. service members die. Um, our presence in Germany, especially in Berlin, throughout the Cold War was largely that kind of tripwire force. It guarantees that there is going to be some kind of involvement. So that in itself, I think, is the first part of it. And I think the second part of it is a series of both military, but more specifically, non-military policy options to include economic sanctions, both financial and trade, um, information operations that I think need to be ongoing prior to uh, this sort of uh, action, as well as um, other pre-communicated um, uh, potential policy options to include things like cyber attacks um, and other kind of non-kinetic uh, attacks that would be in response to this sort of action, all of which are pre-planned, pre-coordinated between the United States, Taiwan, Japan, Australia, and potentially other regional allies and partners, and then communicated to China. And I think it's it's th it, that second part. So it's not just you have to plan these things in advance. You say, okay, like we're all going to agree that if this sort of thing happens, here are going to be our collective responses. And then you have to say to China, not exactly what you're going to do. You don't have to telegraph your punches, but you do have to to demonstrate to them the ability and the willingness to do some of these things. Um, and whether that means, you know, I, I, I think a great example of it is um, when the Japanese prime minister recently, um, you know, declared that he would support the United States in the event of, uh, of an attack on Taiwan. He would support U.S. actions to defend Taiwan. Same thing with the recent Australian declaration that they would support the United States in defense of Taiwan. Those kind of declaratory statements may not mean much in and of themselves. Um, but they do, they can, if connected to investments in specific response capabilities, have, so you have both the declaration, the statement of will, and then a demonstration of capability. So these kinds of things, if you, if you build them um, prior to a crisis and you demonstrate them and you declare them to China, say, look, if you attack Dongsha, we understand that we cannot put enough military force on Dongsha to defend it. And we're not going to get into a contest of, of broad pain infliction over it. But if you do seize Dongsha, here are the consequences. One, you will have to get into an armed conflict with Taiwan. It will not be a bloodless coup de main. Two, you will face a tighter counterbalancing coalition in the region to comprise the United States, Taiwan, Japan, Australia, and potentially other uh, regional allies and partners who face similar territorial disputes with you. And you will face economic sanctions of, of this type, and you will face potential trade sanctions of this type. And oh, by the way, like here's a sort of information campaign that we might launch against you. And here are potential escalatory options. Now, you don't want to lay all of this out in specifics, but you do want to give enough of the picture of it so that they understand that not only are you willing to go, uh, you're, you're willing to do something about this problem, but that you have the capability to do it. And so that they understand that they're going to pay a cost directly for the seizure of these kinds of islands, taking these actions that are below sort of more obvious deterrence thresholds. I mean, essentially what you're doing is you're establishing a, a deterrence threshold that is where the response is something less than, a, than absolute war. 
And I think that's something that we've struggled to do with these sort of gray zone type scenarios, whether it's Dongsha or South China Sea, it's crafting a suite of policies across what we call the dime fill, yeah. um, you know, the diplomatic information, military, economic. Finance, intelligence, and law enforcement. Yeah, but, um, but we just usually focus on M when it comes to deterrence. We ignore the D, I, and E, and then we build these policies post facto. So what I'd say is you build your policies on a multilateral basis um, beforehand, clearly demonstrate the capability so that you've got, you know, it's clear that Japan and Australia will join in this coalition at the very least, and then potentially other regionalized partners, and then demonstrate what the costs are going to be economically, informationally, diplomatically, and also, yes, militarily. Um, and if you do that, you can make it so that the, the seizure of things like Dongsha or the seizure of, of another island or a, a concerted um, subconventional coercive strategy carries with it clear consequences that aren't just a binary distinction between either like we're not doing anything about this and this is gray zone stuff and we can't do anything or we're going straight up to like full up war. And we, we lack we lack an ability to craft policies in a nuanced way in between those two gaps. And I'd say this is like kind of a first attempt at crafting what that might look like if you wanted to make these kinds of things into poison frogs, where the, the seizure of it makes you worse off than you would have been if you just left it alone in the first place. But just like a poison frog, it advertises how bad it is to eat it by being super bright and really garish. You, you've got to make it clear from the get-go that you're actually going to do this sort of thing. You have to declare it because if you, if you don't, right, and you just sort of leave it very like subtle and, you know, ambiguous, you might get eaten anyway. You mentioned the importance of um, sort of bringing allies and partners on board, uh, incorporating them into a kind of comprehensive signaling effort. Um, you know, that's a, a central part of deterrence. Uh, you know, without making the mistake of, I think, drawing too many parallels with the Cold War, NATO's origin story speaks to that uh, that importance. In the Asia-Pacific, specifically sort of surrounding this type of scenario, there is the the fact that the United States, for all its global force projection capabilities, is still a long ways away, and China is right there. That creates a um, potentially, you know, difficult uh sort of decision-making calculus for potential partners in the region. How much of a challenge is it then creating this sort of network of, um, you know, combined uh, signaling that, that brings to bear the, the voices of uh, a variety of partners in the region? Yeah. And it's, you know, I, the, the report references it. You'll always, you'll often hear, um, especially from people who aren't actually Asia experts, and I do not I do not purport to be an Asia expert. I am not casting myself in that role. It is not my, it is not my area of expertise. But you, Asia experts that I that I do speak with, who are, are are legitimate Asia experts, always lament the discussion of, well, we just need a NATO for Asia. Like you hear this all the time. Like we need a multilateral alliance structure uh, in Asia. Um, and the problem with it is, it doesn't work, or at least it hasn't worked historically for a whole host of reasons. There's a reason why we have this sort of hub and spoke um, alliance architecture in Asia with the United States as a hub, and then, you know, various other nations as spokes that kind of connect to us, but that don't really have like really tight bilateral relations. A lot of it 
um, has to do with sort of historical tensions between some of these countries in particular, our two closest East Asian allies, uh, 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 the Republic of Korea and, and Japan, um, have what might be termed a, a rocky relationship with each other historically, um, and that's putting it quite mildly. Um, but be that as it may, um, crafting something like this, whether it's multilateral or still in kind of a hub and spoke, or even just kind of a, a slightly more amorphous structure like what you see with the Quad, um, can have, I would argue, um, if if you if you can craft policies inside that architecture, uh, can have a deterrent effect. Um, it, you know, obviously, it's not going to be as tight as what you have in NATO, where it's very clear, like you attack one NATO member state, and you know, an attack on one is an attack on all. Um, I don't think you're ever probably going to get to something like that in Asia, but you can have a structure that says these sorts of behaviors outside the norms and the rules that we have established in this region are going to meet with the following kinds of policy responses. And I do think that, and the report identifies Japan as a critical node here. Um, to your point, smaller countries, perhaps a Vietnam or a Philippines or, or you know a Brunei or Malaysia, it's probably not going to feel like they want to stick their head up over the parapet and potentially get whacked by China if they do, if they stand up on behalf of Taiwan, because it's just not worth it for them, right? The, the, the amount that they could gain from upholding the norm of territorial inviolability and the, the rules-based order isn't worth the potential loss of trade, of, you know, uh, of economic investment, all of the things, the coercive power that China could bring to bear. But if Japan gives them cover, if Japan says, no, we're, we're in on this, um, that I think changes the dynamic pretty substantially because it is a significant declaration of a power that is in the region that has serious skin in the game that they are actually going to stand up to China. And I think that changes the calculus a little bit than if it's just the United States who, as you rightly say, are, is far away. Um, if it's just the United States and Taiwan, I think it becomes very difficult to craft anything more than just bilateral policies. Um, and the deterrent effect of those is, is pretty minimal. Whereas if now all of a sudden Japan is involved, Australia is involved, then you might start to agglomerate more of a regional coalition. I can't say that it's perfect, right? I can't say like, if then, you know, if this, then that, right? That's too mechanistic, but it certainly increases the probability of creating an actual regional coalition vice having just a US-Taiwan um, coalition. It is it's difficult for me to envision a scenario, at least in the near term, whereby Beijing publicly disavows its desire to, well, its intent really to to reunify Taiwan with the PRC. I was I was listening to a podcast recently, and and I apologize to whoever this quote uh, should be attributed to because I, I don't remember. I heard it secondhand. It was said by somebody, and then and they relayed on this podcast. But essentially, the gist of it was that a good way of conceptualizing China's perspective on Taiwan. Um, at least with respect to strategic interests, is to compare it to three other things, Cuba, Berlin, and the Middle East. Uh, its proximity to China uh, gives it a certain degree of importance, similar to how Cuba's proximity to the United States gave it uh, significance uh, to the U.S. during the Cold War. Uh, and just as Berlin, or, or West Berlin anyway, was also during the Cold War, 
a sort of clear example of a society that was more open, more free, and more democratic than than the Soviet Union in East Germany, Taiwan sort of represents something similar vis-a-vis China today. And and then thirdly, you know, the Middle East has had a sort of intrinsic strategic importance for you know, for decades, many decades, because of oil, a resource that external powers needed. Similarly, Taiwan's dominance of the semiconductor manufacturing gives it, uh, you know, also a, a strategic importance. I read recently that China spends more on semiconductor imports than on than on oil. I don't know how you know precisely useful that set of comparisons is, but at a minimum, I think it does kind of emphasize that there are very real interests at play. On top of which, there are these you know historical and cultural layers that I'm sure people are obviously familiar with. So, given all of that. Again, I have a hard time seeing Beijing just saying publicly, yeah, we're, we're no longer interested in Taiwan or the stakes are too high and we're not going to pursue it. But is it conceivable that a situation could be created where Beijing's rhetoric re- maybe remains the same? There's a, there's a certain amount of saber rattling, but that we can sort of increase our confidence that China is not actually likely to act against Taiwan or... Are China's interests just so real that that's not that's not even remotely realistic? Uh, it's a, a very very interesting question. I mean, I, I think it's hard. Um, you know, I, I think I, tr- I try to think of of analogs to um, to Taiwan, and I, I kind of come up short. I do think the system issue is is definitely salient, um, especially now, um, in that they they do present another alternative. Uh, another alternative government structure for the Chinese people, um, and I think as you've as we've seen increasingly when it comes to Hong Kong, right, that Beijing really doesn't like that. <laughs> they don't like the idea that there's like another structure, which is actually I think one of their failings and one of the reasons that Taiwan has moved so sharply away from even even kind of considering if you look at the the public opinion polling inside Taiwan about like what people think about potential. Um, unification with the PRC, just like people are very, very against it. And I think China's behavior toward Hong Kong has reinforced that as it's basically told people one country, two systems is not a thing. Like that's not, there's going to be one country and it's going to be one system and it's going to be the system that comes out of Beijing, whether you like it or not. Um, and so I think like that, that I think is is an interesting aspect, but I do think that, that there's something deeper um, for the for the PRC and for the Chinese Communist Party that it's like it's like unfinished business from the civil war, um, like they just like they still haven't like fully achieved their objectives, and it's like it like gnaws at them um, in a way that you know I like imagine that like the United States had like never like fully finished the civil war when it like in 1865, and like there was some holdout, you know, and like we could just never like take it, you know, like Texas just like never gave up or something like that, and like you know it was just like stuck in our craw. Um, I think it's it's probably almost like a better analogy in many ways, um, and I think you know that's I, I think that's that's kind of how I I would put it um, because I think there is, and one of the problems we face is, as strategists and defense planners is they have this incredibly asymmetric um, asymmetric desire for the object that over over what we care like they're their desire to retake Taiwan is huge and it's very difficult for us to push them off that position. Right. So to your point about like, can we, 
change them to the point where their five-year plans don't say this. Uh, I think, no, we they'll always say this until the Chinese Communist Party goes away. And heck, who knows what, you know, if something eventually does replace the Chinese Communist Party, whatever replaces them might still feel this way. And I'm sure, you know, in the 1990s when we were saying, oh, you know, the Soviets are gone and like we can bring the, the Baltic nations into the fold and like they can come back into a NATO like or a Europe whole and free. Like we never really thought that like some future Russia might like actually object to that um, in potentially in violent ways. Like I don't think that was on our radar screen enough. Um, I'm sure there were probably some people saying it, but I don't think it was first and foremost because otherwise we might not have done what we did. Um, so the same thing is kind of here. Like I, I, you always have to imagine that the fundamental interests of a country may not necessarily change, even if you change the regime that's in charge. Um, and I also think that um, at the same time that we're never going to push them off of the desire to, in their minds, um, reunify, but in, in their minds of Taiwanese, unify their country. Um, I, I think we can make it so that military options don't seem viable for them. And I think that's where we need to keep our focus is to ensuring that they don't ever see seizing Taiwan by force, whether through a coercive campaign like a quarantine or a blockade or through um, a, a full up invasion, that that just never seems like a credible option for them. Um, and that the potential consequences of it, one, they, they don't think they could succeed. And that two, the potential consequences of it would far outweigh any potential benefits and that there would be a serious risk of failure um, and with it, the potential, you know, downfall of the Chinese Communist Party um, as the sort of le the leading organization inside China. And I think if we can maintain that risk as a clear and credible risk that they face, if they were going to try to do something like this, that we can deter the behavior for long enough. Um, now, again, this gets into another question that people uh, I find um, often ask, which is, is this a near term, a media term or a long term problem? And I think that really depends on your sort of projection of a long-term trajectory of Chinese power. There's different schools of thought when it comes to, to Chinese, both you know, national power and also military power. Um, there's you know, the, the school of thought, I think you hear this a lot when you, talk, you hear um, former Indo-PACOM commander, Admiral Davidson talk, um, where he says, you know, look, this is a, like I'm worried about the six year time frame, and I'm really worried about you know, in, like this immediate threat to Taiwan. Um, you hear some other folks are a little bit more concerned about like the 2030 timeframe. Um, then you hear other people, you know, you often hear the uh, the 2049 timeframe bandied about um, as the sort of like, you know, the the um, the the centenary of um, the completion of the, the Chinese Civil War. Um, you know, I, I, I don't really know. Like, I, I, I don't think anybody really knows what the right time frame is, but it really colors your assessment of the risk. And then there's your discussion of like, well, do you think that China is still a rapidly rising power? Or do you think it's a power that's risen and is now plateauing kind of like, you know, Japan in the late, uh, in the 1990s? Um, or do you think that it's going to keep growing, but sort of at a more like reasonable rate? And, or do you, are you from the sort of Chinese declinist crew where you think like, oh, that, you know, the, 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 the demographic challenges facing China, it's going to get old before it gets rich and it's going to face all these significant you know economic problems as its population ages and it can't backfill because the one china the one child policy and so now you've got these like serious economic headwinds they're going to face in the next 20 30 years you know i think there's so much uncertainty in all those assessments it's really hard to say um 
I think that we need to be able to plan and hedge around the possibility of actions in multiple timeframes. Um, I don't think we can say, oh, this is just a 2030 problem, or this is just a 2025 problem, or this is just a 2049 problem. I think we need to have a strategy that enables us to flexibly deter and hedge across multiple different timeframes, potentially using different methods. Um, right. So the way that we deter in 2049 might be radically different than the way we deter today. And same thing in 2030 vice today. It doesn't mean we change our policy vis-a-vis -vis deterrence and defense of Taiwan. It just means we're going to do it in different ways. Um, but I, I, I think that you can't just say like, you can't just snap a chalk line and say like, I only care about this time frame because well, they'll either go before you're ready. They'll say, okay, that's great. You only care about 2030. Like, I, I got you. I, I'll just go in 2025. Or they'll just wait. Um, they'll say, you know, if you want to optimize yourself around a particular time and a particular mission set, I'll just, I'll find a different way to do it in a different time frame. Yeah, you know, deterrence can sort of be an unsatisfying strategic approach, at least in, in yeah. that narrow sense, that there isn't a point at some point in the future that where you know you'll be able to to you know ascertain whether or not your uh, your strategy has been successful. Um, that remains the case until you have the the advantage of hindsight. We can look back in history, look at the Cold War, and and say, hey, deterrence worked pretty well, and and that's great. Yeah. But there were, I'm sure, times during those decades when deterrence was being implemented, where planners and strategists were struggling to to assess whether or not it was successful and look for signs that it was likely to be successful in the in the future. But I think it's a good. I was going to say it's a good example, though. I mean, you know, you're asking me like, you know, well, you know, what does this look like, and and how does this evolve over time, you know. Our deterrence posture in the Cold War changed radically from 1946 to 1989, um, and there were multiple different phases to it, and there were multiple different ways in which our deterrence posture was maintained. You know, the bedrock of it was always, you know, the, the the potential for nuclear response, but you know, the the salience of that nuclear response and the kind of it um, changed dramatically from you know the sort of early new look Eisenhower period, where it's like we're going to maintain a little bit of force forward, but really ultimately. The deterrent is is nuclear weapons coming from from the homeland, toward the flexible response period to you know more of a detente period to the sort of you know more more aggressive Reagan response in in the early 1980s. Um, so you know the way you're doing it over time can evolve and shift. It's just that it's the maintenance of that deterrent posture, the over time that I think matters, and I think that's where um, the focus of the department now. Um, is and, and where it should continue to be. But I do think that um, as we continue to focus on deterring the sort of the big thing, which I, I do think should be the primary focus of the Department of Defense, the government as a whole needs to think about things that aren't just the big thing. Um, because as we've seen in the South China Sea, you can add up a lot of little things into a fairly big problem. Um, and you can you can do it in a way if you're China that avoids the big war that you might not want to fight. And I, I would say that you know when it comes to Taiwan, the things that concern me are the ways in which China could, in peacetime, chip away at our deterrence posture and our defensive posture of Taiwan. Uh, you know, setting aside just Dongsha, um, you know, I I remain concerned most just as much perhaps about the idea of um, like an information quarantine or information blockade of Taiwan, um, you know, of, of the possibility of China trying to cut Taiwan off from access to the, the 
you know, what we call the global information grid or, you know, the World Wide Web um, and, and, you know, using the vulnerability of undersea cables and the vulnerability of, of satellite um, communications to really render Taiwan sort of isolated in the, in the information domain, um, which I don't know that we have a good proxy for that in history of like, is that an act of war or like, is it not an act of war or like, how would we define that? Because we've never really seen it before. Um, I think that's like a, a really fascinating scenario that I would like to to see played out. Um, but so it, it, we as a government have to be able to walk and chew gum at the same time, right? We can't, we, we have to, we have to concentrate on deterrence of the big potential problem, which is obviously an invasion of Taiwan, while at the same time, not completely ignoring all of the smaller coercive actions that are going on below that, because those smaller coercive actions can make the deterrence problem more challenging. Do you have plans to revisit this this scenario in a future war game? Or, um, you know, are there other scenarios related to Taiwan that uh, that you plan to or would like to uh, to war game in the future? Yeah, so, um, you know, I, I will definitely continue to do war games vis-a-vis Taiwan. Um, whether I do this particular game or not, I think depends on, you know, interest in, on behalf of sponsors and interest in behalf of the, the, the audience. Um, I think for me, what I would really like to do sort of regardless of, of anything else is uh, one of the things we do in wargaming that I think is, is a flawed perspective. And I, I say this cause you know, I, I'm certainly guilty of it is we write scenarios where there is a war because there has to be war. Otherwise you don't have a war game, right? So like we will write out the possibility of like pre pre-conflict off ramps, right? Because if there's a pre-conflict off ramp, then like everybody can go home at like, you know, we have a three day war game. Everybody goes home at like 9 a.m. on the first day because there's no war. Um, so you kind of like put people on railroad tracks into a conflict. Um, but then at the end, we like back our way out and say like, well, what could we have done to deter this conflict based on the outcome of the war that we like made inevitable? Um, and I don't know that that's like a completely wrong method, but there is some problems with it, right? Like there's, there's stuff that's inside it that's good, which is like, there are certain kinds of military interactions that are repetitive across time and they're repetitive across scenarios, which if you can derail them fundamentally, like make an adversary's military strategy quite problematic. Um, so for example, you know, in a war over Taiwan with, with, with China, um, we know that they're going to go after U.S. air bases in the theater, for example. If you can make it so that it's much, much harder for them to attack U.S. air bases in the theater, their military strategy has a fundamental problem at the core of it, which is that U.S. air power is going to be more or less unfettered, and they know that they don't win in that scenario, and so therefore, like it, ha- it can have a potential deterrent effect on them. But like you're looking at that almost as like a couple removes. Right, is you're you're looking at like an effect that occurs, and you say, well, if I could undo that effect, then maybe it would make you not do this thing. Um, I think we, as a wargaming community, should spend more time doing things that look a little bit more like crisis simulations, um, pre-conflict crisis simulations, using different assumptions, different actors under different conditions, to really get at what are the actions that truly deter in a crisis. Because ultimately, the decision to go to war or not to go to war is really a political one. Um, as much as military planners like myself like to focus on things like operational interactions and military balances and you know net assessments of military power, those things are important to be sure. 
that ultimately at the end of the day, the decision to go to war or not to go to war is made by a political actor inside a political structure, getting advice from a whole host of different factors, both military and intelligence and domestic political and all these kinds of things that very rarely do military planners truly think about. And then ask, okay, if I do X, what does that do to your perception of the threat? What does that do to you? Does that does it deter you? Does that egg you on? Does that you know, coerce you into a different set of actions that might actually be worse? Does that escalate the problem? Does that de-escalate the problem? Um, because ultimately, as you point out, like the goal of deterrence is not to figure out a better way to fight the war, right? Fighting the war is the purpose of getting toward deterrence, but there's a whole other aspect to it in the moment of crisis that is, I would argue, somewhat divorced from, you know, how many fighter aircraft we have or how many, you know, aircraft carriers or, you know, how effective are our battle networks? And it really more about what is the political calculation on both sides. And so I think wargaming is a great way to get after that. I just don't think we do that often enough because usually in wargaming, we like to get to a war and it's right there in the name. Um, and I think war, doing more gaming of that, that squishy, difficult to wholly capture pre-crisis build up to a potential conflict. Essentially, you know, rather than go and, and war game September 1914, let's let's go and war game June through August of 1914, right? Because the whole point is to avoid what happens in August 1914. Let's figure out what are the steps we could have taken from from May, June, July, and August, or heck, even back in you know 1913 or 1912 that would have avoided June 1914. So, and I think you know as war gamers, we like to look at once the bullets start to fly. Um, but I do think it would behoove us when we're looking at things from a deterrence perspective to actually look at that period where things could have actually been deterrable rather than fighting the war and then saying, okay, have we gone back and done this again? And we had this different widget, like how would that have made you feel? Um, I think that's that's something that we as a community, that we ought to do. And that's something that I would like to do in the future. Yeah, that's a, a really interesting idea. Um well, Chris, I think we're going to leave it there. Thank you again for uh, for agreeing to uh, to to talk to me. Um, you know, for me personally, uh, with you know a, a general interest in both wargaming and Asian security, um, it's been a fascinating conversation. I, I hope and, and trust that listeners will will find it equally fascinating. So, thank you very much. Thank you very much, Sean. Hey, thank you so much for listening to the MWI podcast. One last thing, if you aren't yet subscribed to the podcast, you can find it wherever you get your podcast. And if you have a second, please leave a rating or give it a review, which really does help us reach new listeners. Thanks again. Thanks again.